Welcome to season four of Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host who lives by the motto, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. Larry Brenner, how are you, Larry? I am doing fine. We're back, Andy! Woohoo! <laughs> season four! Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe we're still going. <laughs> <laughs> and yet. And yet. <laughs> and yet. I'm, I'm full steam ahead. I know. There's so many exciting things going on in the world of Once Upon a Disney. And we are excited to be bringing this movie to you, which is... Surely we're doing a boring movie that we don't like. Oh, wait. It's Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> one of yes. both of our Yay! favorites. Uh, I may have seen this movie more than any other Disney movie. Hey, listen, if you're a precocious young girl, you you watch this movie. <laughs> sure. Um, or, saying. you know, a very hairy young man. You might also feel that way. <laughs> well, let's get some key facts to get this party started. I found out a lot of things of doing a little bit of a deep dive into Beauty and the Beast. So... It is an adaptation of a fairy tale that was penned in 1756 by French writer Jean-Marie Le Prince du Beaumont. After some difficult marriages, she fled France to become a governess in London. And during this time, she crafted a number of fairy tales for a magazine for children that taught young girls moral lessons, but it was printed in French. So it was interesting, including La Bella La Bette, where the Beauty and the Beast, right? So, however, she's often credited as the author, right? But her work was an adaptation of Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve's La Bella La Bette, which was penned in 1740 for adult readers, and for which Jean Marie gave no credit. So, the original novel is the oldest telling of the story that we know of, but it may be an adaptation of something else. We just have no idea. Well, I, I just want to say, now I know it's not a tale as old as time, if we're going to say 1740. <laughs> I, I guess it does. Tale from 1740. It doesn't See, it work doesn't as well. Roll, it doesn't okay. now. Artistic license. <laughs> right, right, right. So there are a number of Beauty and the Beast projects created for screen before Disney finished their project in 1991. If you were around in 1987, just four years prior to this movie, there was a TV series starring Ron Perlman as a beast, and it was a crime drama fantasy where the beast romance of this justice-seeking district attorney in Manhattan. Wait, 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 wait. Was his name Vincent on that series? I'm remembering I, this. Maybe. Yes, I think so. I, I think, think so. so. Yeah. That and was so good. I, yeah, it was a great show. And so I remember... Like when Beauty and the Beast came out, thinking, oh, is this an animated version of that? Because I was kind of into that show. It didn't last very long. It was a couple, maybe three seasons, maybe. Yeah, but, okay. But as early as 1946, there's a French live-action version of Beauty and the Beast. And there are two, at least two American TV movies in 1976 where George C. Scott's The Beast. And then also in 1987... So, as early as 1946, we have a French live-action version of Beauty and the Beast, as well as at least two American TV movies in 1976 and 1987. 
So this is like on the radar of people. People know this story. I mean, even Walt Disney took a look at the material in the 1930s and again in the 1950s after the success of Snow White and Cinderella. But he shelved the idea because it proved to be a challenge for the studio. Now, up until this point, and this is kind of an important thing for screenwriters, I think Disney animators were accustomed to the process of sort of fleshing out details of a story through storyboards, as we've, we've talked about this before when we talked Many about Snow White yes, yes. And, and Bambi and others. And there are definite pros and cons to this approach to animated filmmaking. But this time, Disney CEO Michael Eisner hired Linda Wolverton, a screenwriter, to actually craft an original draft of the story before the storyboarding actually commenced, using the screenplay as, as a guiding light for development. I'm biased. I think that's the way it always should have been done. And Agree. I think it was a, a wonderful move on their part. Yeah. And I think it shows in the movie, honestly. Yeah. It's strong plotting. Well, the issues that we've had before about, oh, we take this little detour onto, you know, something else. And why are we staying here for forever? You know, we don't have that problem. With the, the pacing works a lot better, I think. Yes, absolutely. So Howard Ashman of The Little Mermaid and Aladdin fame was tapped once again to assist in the story along with Alan Menken. Ashman's health was failing, but he still wanted to work on it. Everybody still wanted him. And the entire pre-production was moved from London to a residence inn in Fishkill, New York. So it was then that the team added more characters, and they included the household servants and guests onto the script. And very sadly, um, Ashman passed away eight months before the film's release. On September 29th, 1991, an unfinished version of this movie, it's about 70% finished, uh, was screened at the New York Film Festival as a work in progress. And even in this unfinished state, the film received a 10-minute long standing ovation from the film festival audience. The entire movie was finished between September and its premiere on November 13th. So they did 30% of the work in that amount of time. In Hollywood, the premiere happened at the El Capitan Theater with a wider release on November 22nd. And the film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It was the first animated feature to do so when there were just five nominees. Now I think they've expanded it to 10 Best Picture nominees, maybe. But um, that was just, you know, it was like one of the five best. Howard Ashman and Alan Menken won the Academy Award for Best Original Song, Beauty and the Beast. And Alan Menken won for Best Original Score. Deservedly so. I do not begrudge them one of those awards. This is an amazing movie. So maybe, Andy, we should get into where this amazing movie begins. And since we're starting off the season, let's review our pet term, the Manishtana. The Manishtana comes from the Jewish holiday of Passover. It opens up the four questions where we ask, why is this night different from all other nights? And when we talk about it, when we apply this term to movies, generally we're asking, why do we open this movie here? Why do we start here? Why is this what we want to begin? And I'm going to say that this movie it's Manishtana begins very much in classic Disney form. We have a storybook sort of opening where a narrator speaks to us and, and tells us all of the exposition about the beast, although we don't actually see the characters in their animated form. We see them as stained glass windows. 
right? Stained glass paintings to, to a degree. We open up on the castle, but then we see the story being told through visual imagery. And that's how it begins. And then we're going to switch immediately to meeting Belle in the village. But why do we begin here? And do we need to begin here? I think it's an interesting choice. I mean, first of all, as you mentioned, it's a nod to the historicity of the of the film. But we also learn everything we need to know. We learn that Beast is under a spell that can only be broken if he falls in love by his 21st birthday, right? And then we hear whoever would fall in love with a beast. And then the next thing we have is Belle in the village. I think it's pretty magical, actually. I like it. I like it, too. What, but what I like about it, there's a, there's a couple of things that I think... In general, do I think we need it? I don't think there's anything about that this opening that we need. We will get all of these details later when they're more relevant. But if you're going to do it, you do it this way very quickly. This opening exposition takes about a minute. They hide some reveals from us. We don't actually see the beast. We don't see what everyone's been transformed to. They're like, creating a tone of mystery. We know why it's happened, but we don't know what it is that's happened. It's raising questions and it's setting up a dramatic tension. What happens when we get to the castle? What does this beast look like? Right. And it's also narrated by David Ogden Steers, who also stars as Cogsworth. So that's kind of an interesting thing when we hear like Cogsworth is telling us the story, but we don't really know who he is, but we are going to meet him. And again, that air of mystery, I think, adds a lot to this story, as you said. So while I would say you could cut this, on the other hand, I'm going to say it's a minute. It's not something that needs to be cut. And it is setting tone, which the opening in the village does not do. Opening in the village is very bright and lively and doesn't have an air of mystery. So I think, you know, there are more pros in favor of opening this way than there are cons. All right, so let's get into the plot. So I've, I've said the movie starts properly with Belle in the village, singing her daily song where she makes fun. No, she doesn't really make fun. <laughs> but, but her daily song where she walks through the village and talking about how this life in the village, while it might be fine for other people, is not fine for her. And she does not feel like she belongs there. Although I will say, you know, she's not the town pariah. She may stand out, but I did notice that she's got a couple of allies here and there in the village. Obviously, the biggest one is going to be her father. But there is, you know, the guy who runs the bookstore. And if we had time, I want to unpack his business model of having a bookstore in a village full of illiterate people. <laughs> and the one person who reads the book, he lets borrow them for for free. Uh, this is why small businesses fail. This is I just want to yeah, point that out. But he, he really needed a better business model there, than me. Yeah. There are a couple of there are a couple of guys who are checking Bell out and find her attractive beyond necessarily Gaston. No one's like She's weird, and they gossip about her, but and they don't get her. But she's not like, I don't know. She's she's not Quasimodo in Notre Dame, right? Right. I mean, there there is an interesting idea that I've always had about resentment. It's it's almost it's not quite resentment of her. They don't get her, but I think they almost envy her because she is sort of a free spirit, and you know, it's easy to talk about someone you sort of envy. Here's the one thing I wonder. Belle is privileged. 
she doesn't work. All these other women, I need six eggs. You know, they've got babies. They're they're baking bread. They're, they're all doing work. And she's just like walking through the day going, I'm so bored. Get a job, Belle. Get a job. <laughs> well, that's probably what the village is thinking, Your right? free time is a luxury, Belle. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, it just occurred to me now. But, but, but that is all exposition. It Uh is still exposition when Gaston comes to sort of get flirty-flirty with Belle. We see Belle go to her father, Maurice, and he's an inventor, we learn. And uh, he's about to go off to an inventor's fair. But ultimately, all of that is not our inciting incident. And our inciting incident is the event that is going to change their lives forever, There's no movie unless this event happens. And I want to throw out, this movie puts its inciting incident in a weird place. Andy, do you want to talk about it? Where do you see the inciting incident? Well, I see Maurice, of course, who's Belle's father, right? He gets lost in the woods. He takes a wrong turn. Or does he? Because Philippe the horse, it's Philippe, right? It seems to take the turn and not Maurice. But anyway, he takes the wrong turn in the woods. What's what's interesting about that inciting incident is usually the inciting incident happens to the protagonist. Right. So we are following Maurice's perspective. Actually, I'm going to be honest. I'm Philippe in this scene. When, when, when they're looking at the two roads and Philippe's like, this road looks better. And like Maurice is like, no, certain doom lane. Let's go down that way. But we're not in the perspective of either of the characters we're going to identify as our main protagonists. You know, it's not called Beauty and Maurice, but Maurice is, uh, you know, our point of view. When we get to the scary castle, he's the one who crosses the threshold. He's the one who enters into the new world, meets the characters there, has a confrontation with the beast. And so that feels like the inciting incident. However, and it, and it is in this movie, but it doesn't have to be. Because the truth of the matter is, this scene should probably... I like this scene. But I could, for in terms of cleanness about where the inciting incident should be, if you remove this scene, there's a better inciting incident. Which is, Bella's at home, Philippe comes back without her father, and that inspires her to go on a quest to find her dad. The trick is, it's an inciting incident that's secretly really just more exposition. It's just not as noticeable an inciting incident as what Bell's is, her father goes missing. I mean, if, if that doesn't happen, the, the movie doesn't happen, right? So if the wrong turn isn't taken, then we don't get there. So that's, that's kind of why I'm leaning, leaning where I'm leaning. Uh, look, the movie, the, I would give full credit to this answer. But actually, thank you. (laughs) No, 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 I would. Even watching this movie, I felt like, okay, here's the inciting incident. It just can't Uh be because it's not Maurice's story. It's just a more compelling moment than Belle's more subtle moment later on, which is the stagecoach arrives. If Belle doesn't make the decision to go after her father, the movie doesn't happen. You know, it's got to be. We got to link it to the protagonist's choice. If she just stays in the village by herself, good luck breaking that curse, beast. But, um, you know, maybe you and Maurice can make it work. Good luck. Yeah. That didn't say it had to be romantic love. But I would put the inciting incident at Belle going there. 
But I also think the movie thinks it's Maurice entering the castle. So I'm going to give us both full credit on this answer. So rising action. Belle goes to... I'm, I'm going to do this quickly. You have seen this movie. We know you have. You have. So I'm not going <laughs> to do not, a, no, no, they have. Please stop this one. <laughs> Andy, they have. No one listens okay. to our podcast and hasn't watched Beauty and the Beast. Uh, okay, fair Email enough, me if I'm enough. wrong. Email me if I'm wrong. I'm, we're going to get no emails. Okay, so that being said, that being said, uh, Belle goes to the castle, negotiates her father's release is given rules which she immediately breaks from the beast in terms of not going to the to the secret room in the east wing i believe it is she runs from the castle is beset by wolves beast rescues her we get a lot of time in the castle where the two of them slowly over the course of months grow to care about each other and develop a real friendship mm-hmm. at the same time back in the village gaston Still obsessed with marrying Belle, who rejected him earlier in the movie, uh, concocts a scheme to to force Belle to marry him. She's going to have Maurice thrown into an insane asylum unless she agrees to marry him. When Beast sees that Beast and Belle learn that Maurice is in trouble back in the village, the Beast releases Belle from her captivity. She comes back to the village to rescue her father. She comes across the blackmail scheme and foils it by revealing that the beast actually exists. Andy, where does this movie get to its climax? I think there's a couple places that we could point to. One, I think when Gaston falls to his death. The final confrontation between Beast and Gaston. I'll go with that. And then the other is really when Beast is transformed into a human. I guess. That, and that would be the emotional climax is that Belle, you know, l- says that she loves him and it allows the transformation to happen. We have two climaxes. One is an action climax and the other is an emotional climax, as we've seen in often in these movies. They're in close proximity to one another. And then we get some falling action, which is we see the entire castle gets retransformed. All of the Dancing, singing furniture have been turned back into human. It looks like Belle and and Beast are going, although he's not Beast anymore, but whatever. She's going to call him Beast for the rest of his life, I'm sure. (laughs) That's right, Uh, I'm sure. Are are going to get married. And the entire castle has been transformed, including, you know, art style-wise. The gargoyles have been turned to angels. The darkness has been turned to light. It is a definitive happy ending for our characters And we Mm -hmm. really are not left with any questions for any of them. We get the sense that Lumiere is going to find love with the maid who used to be the little hand broom. Oh, yeah, Fifi. Fifi. (laughs) And I I also think, like, there's something going on between Maurice and Mrs. Potts. Maybe I'm imagining it, but it could be. It could Could be. be. Could be. Belle does need a mother, so Mrs. Potts has been functioning in that role, so. And honestly... I think they'd be cute together, right? Yeah. And Chip yeah. might Chip might need a dad, right? Chip needs a dad. That's right. I'm happy for everybody. And that is the plot. It is such a straightforward plot. You really can't get lost in it. Everything is moving forwards. It's simple, but it works. 
it works we, we they get, because it's a movie that knows primarily this is about a love story between Belle and Beast. We've got to get on board with rooting for both of them. And as long as that is always true, we're always headed in the right direction. Right. Well, let's talk about some main characters. Um, Belle, played by Paige O'Hara, who I think actually the performance, when I, I watched it again this morning, and she almost has this Judy Garland kind of character to her, the way she brings, you know, Belle's to to life. Anyway, just some that thought, straight thought of mine. I think it's an homage. I, I think it's more than just, I didn't think of it that way. So I'm glad you said it. But immediately she's wearing the same colors that Dorothy wears in The yeah, Wizard of Oz. She is. And she's singing a song that is very similar, not, not necessarily musically, but in terms of message. Dorothy wishes for a world that is more interesting than her life in Kansas. And Belle uh-huh. is also wishing to be gone from a provincial farm life. I think... Belle is older than Dorothy is. Agree, agree. But then again, this is a movie that's going to focus on romance, and Wizard of Oz does not. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that that they colored her initial outfit off of Dorothy. I think I think you're probably right there. Yeah. What do we think about Belle? What do you think? I mean, one thing I had this thought, I have a couple of things. The first thing is that Belle doesn't seem to have much of an arc. She doesn't. Beast has more of an arc than she does, and we can talk about that in a second. So, all things considered, I feel like this movie is very much a Pride and Prejudice sort of feel. I'm a, as I said, big Jane Austen fan. And I feel like Beast's flaw, which is he's very prideful because he's he was a spoiled king and he, saw, and he wants people to do things on his terms. He's got to overcome his pride in order to be someone who will appeal to Belle. Belle needs to overcome the initial revulsion from seeing the beast, right? Like, like she's got a, an understandable prejudice from seeing him that she needs to overcome. It just doesn't read as strongly an arc because he really does look like a monster. He was purposely made to, and he is also behaving monstrously. She's not wrong to have the reaction to him that she does. But I love Belle. So here's the fun thing about Belle. You know, people often talk about Belle having Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, I was I was just kidding when I said that. There's been some criticism really leveled that what Belle's going through is a little Florence Nightingale effect mixed with that Stockholm Syndrome. I'm really interested to hear what you think about that. Well, I get why it reads that way. But here's, here's the funny part about it. Belle, once Maurice is gone from the castle... Belle is in charge, has all the power in their relationship. She locks herself in her room and refuses to get out. He tells her to come down to dinner and she and says this is not a request and she doesn't. He says stay out of the east wing and she says and immediately after she sneaks outside breaking his downstairs breaking his rules, the next thing she does is break his next rule, which is to go to immediately to the place he has forbidden her to go. Right. right. Then, moments later, after he responds terribly to the fact that she's invaded his privacy, she decides, you know what? Promise or no promise, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Mm. He goes and saves her life. Obviously, leaving was not the right decision because there are wolves out there. Uh, and he Correct. saves her. But really, the truth of the matter is, at any given point, 
Belle could choose to leave. Her word is keeping her there. Maybe her her nursing him back together is keeping her there. But the funny part is, Belle never changes who she is. We just talked right. about how her character doesn't change. She doesn't change her behavior. The person who changes his behavior is him. And I, if you'll indulge me, if you'll indulge me. Sure. There's a movie called Watchmen, which we will never do for the, for this podcast, which is about superheroes. Uh, one of the superheroes is Rorschach. He's a vigilante who crosses the line and starts killing his enemies. They This can't stand. He gets thrown in prison. And when he's in prison, the criminals he's put away are like, we're going to make this guy's life a living hell. And Rorschach says something to me that I would love to see Belt say to the Beast, which is, Oh, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Mm, if there's Stockholm Syndrome, I think it's the <laughs> other way around. Whose behavior is modified? Who becomes the servant of who? You know, if you made me the offer of living in solitude with a library, like that's endless, right, where I get to eat French cuisine, I'd probably put up with a beast because I think it would be certainly better than being chased around by like Gaston, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, if you're looking for a vacation from the provincial life, eh, it's, it's not half bad. It's hard to do worse than Gaston. Maybe Frollo <laughs> from Hunchback is the only is because because I'd go I'd go for Jafar before I'd go for Gaston. I'm just saying. By the way, just a little side note: the dance between Belle and Beast was actually repurposed from the. 1959 Sleeping Beauty dance between Princess Aurora and Prince Philip. I did not it's know a, that. It's yeah, they were they, again crunch time, right, to get that thing finished, and so they repurposed it. Well, All it right, works. So it does. Beast is uh, played by Robbie Benson. I'm thinking a lot about Beast. I mean, he. It's an interesting tale. This movie of adolescent men and growing up, because when he's young. He's egotistical and selfish without love in his heart, but he's given this almost an opportunity. Well, it's, a, it's an opportunity, right, to mature by the Enchantress. There's this anger and desperation in him that we typically don't see in any of these Prince Charmings, with the exception of Aladdin, but uh, Aladdin's not really a true Prince Charming in the Prince Charming sense. Again, this is the first Disney film I can think of where... Prince Charming actually has a personality. I mean, Eric has a personality. It's just not... Uh, I, I would make right? an argument for him having one. But no, I do hear you. He's more... But he's more than just an object, I think. He, Belle is not pursuing him as if Beast is, his, is her dream. Having a prince is not her dream. Her dream is adventure in the great wide somewhere. Whereas all of those other princesses were looking to their princes as the escape from their life. Even Ariel. Ariel does that. So I think, you know, what, what you're also saying is Beast is the first prince who isn't an object and is a character worthy of pursuing, capable of pursuing an objective that incidentally has very, is not necessarily equal to finding a princess and falling in love. He has to be able to love and receive love. It is about doing the work to become a better person and not the quest. Yeah, and you would think he would be looking to change himself as quickly as possible to overcome the curse. But the days locked in the castle just make him more and more resentful. 
Which I find really interesting, too, because, I mean, the clock's ticking, right? He knows it. He sees what's in the West Wing. He knows the flowers there. He knows all of this. And it would be really easy to create a character that would be, like, hell-bent on making her like him. And then she doesn't like him. And he's trying even more. And, you know, and then finally she acquiesces. But that's not what happens here. And I think it's magic. I have a question for you about the Beast. Yeah. How old do you think he was? when he was transformed into a beast. Keep in mind, he was always referred to as a prince, but never referred to as a king. Right, I would say he's probably 15. See, and I get the sense even younger. I feel like a big part of what happened here is the prince made a choice. The prince was spoiled, he was young, and he didn't have strong parental figures to guide him Mm. into adulthood. Yeah, and so I, I see that. If you got a little Game of Thronesy, I imagine like this is what Joffrey is like without someone to restrain him. And so like the sorceress, the enchantress comes in and teaches him a lesson. I want to talk about this lesson a little bit later in more detail. She's not his mother. What right does she have to do? Wouldn't you get resentful if some witch put a curse on you? What by what authority does she have to make him transform? It isn't until he meets Belle that he wants to transform for her. Up until then, it was, I'm cursed, woe is me, I need to reverse the curse. But it, it, it changes very quickly to, I need to be better for her because I like the way she looks at me when I do things that are kind. Right? His motivations stop being corrupt and they start to be about something bigger. I like that. I like that. Well, I also think Beast is far more interesting as Beast than he is as a human. (laughs) Ever discussed this with says, I would rather he stayed a beast and we could make it work like that. I'm not impressed what he looks like as a human. Well, it's not so much what he looks like. You can see Belle being concerned that the metamorphosis is going to change the one she's fallen for. She's fallen for somebody who's outside the box. I mean, I love that little moment where she like touches his hair and she's like, oh, it really is you, right? Yeah. I mean, I I think that's kind of an interesting moment. And it makes sense to me that she is falling for somebody like Beast because after all, she has her father who is definitely an outside the box thinker. Sure. And she has Gaston who the village loves and she doesn't. So it makes a lot of sense to me that her, in a way, Beast sort of models who her father is. Maybe not with the gruffness, but definitely the outside the box, living outside the village. Nobody understands him kind of thing. I think I think it, com- it works. I just want to praise for a moment the animation design for the Beast. Because I really do think if you're someone who's watching this movie... You fall in love with the Beast, even though he still looks like a monster. His physicality changes. He stops going on all fours. The expression on his face changes, but it's the same body. And I think people watch this movie and find him as attractive as as a monster, just like Belle does. And I can't even begin to think the level of genius that went into creating this design that could be so versatile. Well, let's talk about Gaston. 
played by Richard White. And some weird um, Gaston is smiling because that's his favorite conversation. <laughs> right. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, right? Um, this guy is so narcissistic. And so, and at first, the writing is so great because everyone in town thinks this guy's great. He's got them all pretty transfixed. It's such a great character because at first you think, oh, he's just someone we laugh at, right? And then you realize that he stops at nothing. He is clearly that narcissist and not just a narcissist, but a villain because we see how dangerous he really is. It's a great way to have an antagonist who raises the stakes as the movie progresses. Because it's not just, I'm going to marry Belle. It's, I'm going to marry Belle at all costs. No one says no to Gaston. That's right. I think that's true. I think what's interesting about Gaston, look, he is one of my favorite Disney villains. At the same time, I find him repellent, but I'm always happy when he's on screen. He is very much a villain I love to hate. What I think is interesting about Gaston is how desperately he misses his moment to actually be the hero of this story. There are two places where he could actually be a hero. And the first one is more important than the second. There is a moment when Maurice comes back to the town in a panic, saying a monster has Belle, a hideous beast. She's in danger. She needs to be rescued. This is the moment Gaston has trained his whole life for. He's a hero. There's a monster. You kill the monster. You get the girl. And if he actually in that moment went to rescue Belle, she might be grateful. If he killed the beast, he could rewrite himself into the hero of this story. I still don't think they should be together, but it's, it would be, for him, it's the opportunity. And instead, he mocks Maurice and comes up with an evil scheme. It's like, it is a defining moment for him. He could hero up, but that's not who he is. He's the kind of, it's not about proving his bravery or his worth. It's about getting what he wants. Look, even if he just walked Maurice home to Belle, and Belle was there, and Maurice was like, and she's like, he's like, listen, he was talking about a monster. He was making a fool of himself in the tavern. I wanted to make sure that you were safe, and I wanted to make sure that he was safe. That little bit of kindness might do something for Belle. He isn't. Couldn't even consider it. That sort of happens again. If you put aside the fact that Gaston sets up Maurice to be put in the insane asylum, if Gaston, without asking Belle for anything, stands up to the rest of the town and says, you are not throwing Maurice into the insane asylum. I will stop it. Everybody go home. This cannot happen. Belle, I am so sorry this happened. I'm embarrassed for my townspeople. Please, I apologize for them. It's another moment to be a hero. It would be a manufactured moment in this instance. It's another opportunity for him to be a hero. Again, he doesn't play that card. He goes... He doesn't even try. No. He's not doesn't interested try. in nope. her viewing him that way. He wants her subjugated, but he doesn't want to make he doesn't yeah. want to make a heroic effort. And then we have characters like LeFou, right? Played by Jesse Cordy. LeFou exists to show, I think, just how enamored this little provincial town is with the orders of Gaston. <laughs> I want to go one further. 
LeFou is the problem. It isn't Gaston that's the problem. It's LeFou that's the problem for two reasons. Because he's an enabler, you think? Well, I mean, there's that. But there is a moment where Belle has rejected Gaston, and Gaston is in the tavern drinking. He's in despair. He's upset. It is a moment where his whole life has become a lie because he's assumed that anyone would marry him in a second. Why doesn't she want to be with him? And he's like, nothing helps. I'm depressed. It is an opportunity for Gaston to have insight and reflect upon himself and the choices that he's made and the person that he is. And then LeFou mm-hmm. comes in and sings a song and says, Gaston, stop thinking about this. You're great. Don't examine yourself. Let me tell you how great you are. And robs Gaston of the moment to actually gain self-knowledge. Even beyond that, <laughs> LeFou represents the what you said about him enabling Gaston. If LeFou rejects Gaston's bullying... If people start calling him out in the town on just how terrible he is, Gaston is neutralized. You're absolutely right when you said that he's an, he's an enabler. But Gaston's power comes from the fact that they all love him without recognizing his terrible, misogynistic, hateful behavior. Well, they worship him, right? I mean, they have a song about him and... They don't make excuses from him. They sing praises of him. In a wrestling match, nobody bites like Gaston. Is is an <laughs> actual thing that they praise about him. There's no biting in wrestling. So they like him because he breaks rules. And he is an, sort of a personification of their evilest, worst side. He does the things they're all afraid to do. Yeah, he manifests these, like, those icky crowd tendencies, right? And they love it. Awful. Okay, Maurice, uh, Rex Everhart. The villagers see him as insane, right? I don't think they really do. I think they think he's a weirdo. And let's face it, he is a weirdo. I would hang out with him before I hung out with, with anybody else in town, probably. Well, he's as committed to his craft as, say, the baker or the bookseller. I'm just not sure that people think that what he does is a legitimate craft. Well, they haven't seen the benefit of it yet. Of course, none of them are actually looking for progress. He's the person looking for progress, trying to make life better than it is, where they all think things are fine the way they are, status quo. What I really appreciated is this is in stark contrast to the movie that preceded it, The Little Mermaid where we had Triton, who is very much above his daughter, both physically and power-wise. But Maurice is really a mentor and confident, confidant to his daughter. He says, well, maybe you could find, there must be some boy who likes you. What about Gaston? He seems to like you. And she says, no. He's like, he, he's terrible. And he goes, oh, well, if he's terrible, then you shouldn't go out with him. He is <laughs> right. there to make sure... Like, she knows she's empowered to make the choices she wants to make. He's there to offer advice when she wants it. And when she disagrees with it, he's never he never pushes it. He's such a model of non-toxic masculinity, as opposed to Gaston's, who says, the second that you marry me, here's how many kids we're having, here's how many dogs we're having. Every day ends with you massaging my feet. <laughs> 
All right. So Lumiere, Jerry Orbach, if you were a fan of Law and Order in the 1990s and 2000s or a fan of Dirty Dancing, I think you'll have a tough time believing that Lumiere is Jerry Orbach. (laughs) But he is. And it's magical. Lumiere, I love his character. He doesn't always do what Beast tells him to do. And at the same time, it's probably why his, you know, non-compliance is probably why Beast comes to him for advice. I mean, who else does he have who actually has an active romantic life, right? Cogsworth doesn't seem to be hitting it off with anyone, whatever, whatever Cogsworth predilection is. He's a confirmed bachelor, but Lumiere is playing the field. Of course you go to Lumiere. Of course you do. But it's interesting. He's not a yes man. He's a charmer and he's a great story engine. But he also illuminates life for Beast. I mean, the fact that he is literally light. Literally. He makes things plain for him in a way that I don't think, um, you know, it's interesting to me that none of these household objects seem to be, and we'll talk about some of the others, but they don't seem to be upset (laughs) that they were turned into household objects. Here is where I have a fun fact for you, Andy, because there was a bit in this movie that never made it in where they would have, it's in the musical, but I believe it was made and storyboarded for the movie and was cut, where they sing about being human again, that uh, they were enchanted and that they, they want this for him because they want to be human again. They don't talk about it in this movie. And I think there's some reason reasons why. The musical also adds an element that as the curse is going on, the characters are becoming more and more objects. Cogsworth at one point turns around and there's a wind-up key where there wasn't a wind-up key before. And the idea is when the Enchanted Rose finally does lose its last petal, they will all become inanimate objects in the musical. That being said, that may not be true in this movie, But I believe it is true in the drafting of this movie that they played with that idea. I thought I sat with that for a minute and I thought they seem to be bent on getting the beast back to the prince he was. But it's not just for themselves. It doesn't seem like they're trying to get their lives back. I wonder if they sort of blame themselves for not educating the young prince, to be charitable and kind in the first place. Which is going to bring me right to Cogsworth, because I have something to say about him. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about Cogsworth. David Ogden Steers. Yeah, so Cogsworth is the major domo. He is, for all intents and purposes, the number two of this castle. If you believe, as I do, that the prince is an orphan, and he must be, he doesn't have parents that were transformed into anything in this castle. And if you believe, as I do, that he's a young prince, I I see him as around 12 or 13 when he was transformed. It was the responsibility of the staff to raise the prince. And I believe they were unable to say no to him. And that's why he was spoiled, because he's the young master. And Cogsworth, when we talk about foiling, Cogsworth to me is the LeFou of the castle. Cogsworth is always like, the master says this, even when Lumiere says, but it's not the right thing to do. Cogsworth is like bread and water for her. And, and Lumiere is like, no, we're not doing that either. But, but he's the one who, of all of them, follows the, the beast's rules to the letter. And 
he's the reason that... So you ask yourself, hey, you're an enchantress. Sure, I'm cool with you cursing the prince. Why are you cursing all the servants in the castle? Like, they just work here. And the answer is what you said earlier. They are culpable for him becoming the person he became. And if I could put one scene into this movie, I would love to give Cogsworth an arc where he stands up to the beast and says, your behavior is selfish and abominable and it needs to stop. Because throughout this thing, Cogsworth is so fearful of the beast. And he must have been fearful of him as a spoiled young man. And I would love to see the moment where Cogsworth says, I'm going to stop telling you what you want me to tell you and tell you what you need to hear. Need to hear. Yeah. That's my feeling on Cogsworth. No, it'd be great. I'd be awesome. All right. Mrs. Potts and Chip, Angela Lansbury and Bradley Pierce. I mean, I think it's interesting that Mrs. Potts' mother's bell, and we talked about this a little when we talked about the Little Mermaid. This is the first female figure to mother bell at all. The rest of them sort of talk about her in town or they have, you know, they're in competition with her in a competition she doesn't choose. Mrs. Potts is really the first female figure, along with the wardrobe, to really take care of her, you know, to take care of and nurture her feminine side. And not just her. She also nurtures the beast in that way. She provides a a feminine model for him as well. She also doesn't have much of an arc. That's the thing about the furniture. None of them really arc, and I, I would love to see that happen. But she kind of joins, she's more on Lumiere's side of, of things than she is on Cogsworth's side of things. She's more willing to break the rules than not. Like her, I enjoy Mrs. Potts, and yet I don't think she impacts the plot tremendously. She's there to be someone to talk, she's a confidant, right? Someone you might have tea with. That's Mrs. Potts. Well, I think with somebody, I mean, you don't want to be a didactic in a Disney movie, but I think what she does is she shines a light when little children are watching this and saying, yes, he's very selfish. Yes, he's got a terrible temper. Yes, he's, so that's one of the things that she does. She also, this movie can get really, I think without her, this movie could be really dark and maybe even kind of scary. But I think her presence and then Chip's presence as well allows small children to find themselves in the story. Like, where do I find myself in this? Oh, I'm going to get tucked in. It's time to go to bed. You know, so there's that kind of sweet moment that, you know, I think this movie needs. I think you're right. Otherwise, it does get too dark. I think Mrs. Potts, I think you're exactly right. Mrs. Potts talking to Chip is actually Mrs. Potts talking to the children and letting them know that no matter how dark this movie gets, she's promising them that everything's going to be okay and everything's going to work out. That's Uh, right. I agree with you. I have a question for you, though. The Enchantress cursing Chip is just too far. He's a kid. (laughs) He's a kid. Was he a baby when, when the curse happened? Has he been aging? Yeah, so that's kind of weird. And Mrs. Potts also mentions that he has brothers and sisters in the cupboard, but we never see them. And also when they all come become human, Chip's the only one who becomes human. We don't see lots of little children there. So I I have questions. And the Enchantress (laughs) decides to punish the dog? What did the dog do? (laughs) That's right. I have some questions for this for this enchantress. I wonder if it wasn't a punishment as much as it was like a motivation. Like, how do we motivate that? Maybe he can't love in his heart for 
you know, himself and his own, you know, well-being, but maybe he can change for the other people in his life. And this goes to my my other complaint, which is there's a point where the where the castle is under attack by the mob and Cogsworth says, you know, "Master, the castle is under attack." And he goes, "It doesn't matter now. Let them come." And like it does too matter, Beast. I understand you're sad. You have a castle full of people to protect. Yeah, it illustrates his selfishness, right? Right? Like, it kid, I don't think it's meant to. I think it's meant to illustrate his sadness. But the truth of the matter is, I never see, you know, when do they stop being objects to him? When do they become people that he cares about? He could, you know, it doesn't have to be romantic love. If he learned to love his servants, I feel like that's enough. I think that's enough of a transfer. Not everybody has to find their soulmate to find redemption. And he hasn't found it here. He doesn't see them as people. I don't know that he's ever going to... I'd love to see their dynamic change. I would, And that's why I'm really pushing. I want to see a scene where Cogsworth stands up to the Beast, and for the first time, the Beast sees Cogsworth as a person and not a clock. That would be awesome. Let's talk about foiling. Yay, one of my favorite subjects. Well, I mean, obviously... Well, maybe not obviously, but foiling is about contrasting one character to another character in order to kind of shed some light on what's going on inside maybe a character we favor. The Beast is, for me, is far worse and less redeemable if there's no guest on. Correct. They are opposites of each other. There is so much great foiling in this movie, but let's just let's just start with yours, which is that the Beast is has a terrible exterior, but deep down inside, there is gold. And Gaston is the opposite. He's got every advantage in terms of his physical appearance, but deep down inside, there is nothing. There's no soul there. Uh, it's egg. It's eggs all the way down. He's just been eating <laughs> eggs, and there are eggs where his soul should be. So the beast chooses to change while Gaston doubles down and doesn't. No. And gets even becomes even worse. I think that's an interesting foil. What other foils do you see in this movie? Well, Gaston is also Belle's foil, right? Gaston is the per is is really more her captor when he, like the image of if she stays in this town, she is forced to endure Gaston and the people who worship Gaston and will never recognize him. Gaston, you know, at one point like, says, LeFou, I've been thinking, and LeFou goes, a dangerous pastime, and Gaston goes, I know. This is someone who, like, thinking is, like, the line you cross. Belle, Belle is all about thinking. Belle doesn't care that he's good-looking even a little bit, and in her favor, I will say, Belle does not care that she is good-looking even one little bit. We never see her being vain or primping. She doesn't exist in that world. You know, the one redeeming thing that you could say about Gaston is he in the village seems to recognize Belle's value. He does not. He he recognizes her physical value. He's not in love with her. She's just the prettiest. She wins. There's not there's nothing more to it there. So I think Gaston foils both of them and foils them quite nicely. And he's a foil for Maurice, which we talked about a little bit earlier. He is the toxic masculinity to um, the kind, paternal love, that caring, compassionate confidant that Maurice is. He foils all three of them. He's so perfect for this movie. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He got my wheels turning, for sure. 
so Cogsworth and LeFou, I talked about how they foil each other, but Cogsworth and Lumiere foil each other. They function as a dyad. They are really the odd couple, right? They're Felix and Oscar sure. to, to right, a certain right. degree. Whereas Cogsworth is the one who wants to do things right. Lumiere wants to do the right thing, right? Right. The heart and the head, right? You, you could actually do an argument very similar to what we did in Hunchback of, of Notre Dame and say that the various different parts of Beast's personality at war are can be seen in Cogsworth, Miss Potts, and and Lumiere, like the various different voices urging him towards goodness, urging him towards what is the right thing to do as opposed to doing things right. You could you could argue about like that they are manifesting his internal drama. There's just so much of it. All of the townspeople are foiled by all of the household objects. Yeah. Who are you supporting? Who do you stand for? Do you stand for the person who's being demonized because you know in your heart the that those are all lies and you're going to do the right thing inside with the person who you love and support even though they, they look monstrous? Or are you going to follow the person who leads you on the attack, does not care about you, sees your service as his due, but ultimately you're expendable to them? right? Those are two very different ways of looking towards a leader, to supporting a leader. One is we support him because we know he's right and we love him. And the other is, is we're following him in the hopes that he'll lead us to something, but he doesn't care about us. Exactly. There is so much work done on this. I love this movie. For, I love that you could just plumb the depths of this movie and the foiling that's there. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about protagonist problems a little bit. I think people might think that Belle is the protagonist of this movie. Uh, but as you mentioned before, Belle's sort of the same person at the beginning of the movie as she is at the end, except for the fact that she gets to experience something outside of the norms of provincial life. She gets to have a little, a, a, quite a big adventure. She loves her father, who's a little quirky, and she's able to love the Beast, who's also a little quirky, right? Who do you think the real protagonist of this movie is? I'm going to say... Technically speaking, the Beast is the protagonist and not Belle. However, they are both the protagonist of this movie. And it's it's really hard to say one is and one's not. Yeah, except, except the Beast has a mission. The Beast has a want. There are obstacles both internal and external. There's a ticking clock with him, right? If Belle goes on, I mean, if nothing changes, he stays the Beast the household items are still the household items, right? Nothing really changes for her. Well, except what makes her a protagonist is generally speaking, the person who travels to the magical world is our eyes to that world, is our witness to that world. And if there's a protagonist problem, it's that we cross that castle first with more as Maurice and not as Belle. Belle is the stranger in the strange land. She's the X factor. With a slight adjustment, I think I could make you happier with Belle. Here's the slight adjustment I would make, Andy. I would say, I would have Belle be like, I'm never going to get married because I don't believe in romantic love. I don't believe I'm capable of experiencing it. Not with Ga It's not just that Gaston is ick. Everyone's, you know, like, like, no one values a woman for her mind. There is no one out there 
who will that and that she's closed her heart to the idea of romantic love. If we got if we tease that out of her a little bit and we saw that as she spent time in the castle, she starts to reevaluate that belief and finds that, oh, wait. I've been in love with him for months, and I'm only now realizing it as he lays dying. I feel like we'd have a little bit more of an arc there. Is that movie for children? I don't know. I think it's great. And I think if we start with that prologue of Beast having that mission, and this is what's happened to him, and we all know it. Again, it's that dramatic irony that Belle, we know we're going to get back to it. We know what's in the West Wing. We know what's going on. I think it does make it less scary for children. But yeah, I think the movie knows exactly what it's doing here. I would give it like an A, but not an A plus for protagonist issues. But an A is mm-hmm. pretty good and it counts the same for your GPA. So so it's <laughs> That's fine. Right. That's right. Let's talk about the soundtrack for just a little bit. This movie for me, Larry, is reminiscent of the great musical theater pieces like... Oh, The Sound of Music, or The King and I, or South Pacific. You have these great songs that serve the story. They're not just there to be in the, oh, now we're going to take a break for a song. They're actually driving the story in a way that a musical theater piece should. I mean, the story, generally speaking, like the, the music tells us about character, or it moves the plot along. The mob song that Gaston sings through the mist, through the woods, is literally getting us to the castle from the town. There's so much great stuff happening here. And obviously, you know, we have two really skilled musical professionals writing the music for this. It definitely shows in it. What's funny is, I said this to you earlier pre-production, I'm just going to repeat it now. While I like all of the songs in this movie, even the song I don't like, which when I say I don't like it, I mean, I don't listen to it in my spare time, which is Tale as Old as Time, Beauty and the Beast. Because it, for me, that song is slow. And it doesn't tell us anything. We do, It tells us we're watching the movie Beauty and the Beast. I knew that when I got here. I, I know everything she's saying here. And they're dancing in the animation. We're seeing, you know, like, even that song, I was singing it five minutes before, before, <laughs> you know, we came on to record. It's a good, right. it's a good song. It's a little slow for me. It's, it's not my favorite, but they're all great. Well, the song, um, the Beauty and the Beast song, I mean, there's a line that's bittersweet and strange, finding you can change, learning you were wrong, right? So that's kind of this moment where it's almost the culmination of this moment of, oh, they really are in love. This is kind of a nice thing and we can slow this down and, and make it a little more, there's some romance here and that works out well. I do wonder if small children check out a little bit here uh, in this one spot. And what we're really supposed to seeing is the amazing CGI of an- computer animation in the ballroom, which was groundbreaking. Really, we're supposed to have a feast for the eyes in this moment, um, which, well, oh, by the way, Animation in this movie, gorgeous, 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 from beginning to end, will always be magical. But that moment reads less magical now because we've seen, we've been spoiled by what comes in the future. Correct. At the time, it was just... Breathtaking. It was everything. Belle, the song, um, there's some exposition. Obviously, we know what Belle wants and what would tempt her to be in the castle, I think we get foreshadowing in that song that we get we get the book the book that she's singing about is the one in which the princess doesn't realize who 
Prince Charming is until chapter three, right? We're not going to know who the Beast is until act three. I think that's kind of a fun thing. In Gaston, we see the envy and the jealousy of Gaston, who's probably never been turned down in his life, right? And we see LeFou worried about Gaston and the sharing The hero every- worship. Yeah, that every guy wishes they could be him, right? The positive reinforcement for every negative quality that he has, they love him for the things that that we, they should hate him for. There's nobody better than expectorating. Well, and then we have Be Our Guest, right? And it's the perfect way for this household staff. They're going to woo Belle, right? If he's not going to do it, they're going to do it. And so they make her feel special, as opposed to how she's been feeling in the village, which is a great song. Be Our Guest is great. I also love something there. And I think you can, we can miss it if we aren't careful. But it moves us from disgust and contempt to that actual relationship. And it, it reminds me again of The Sound of Music, because you kind of have this these two people and they're, you know, they don't like each other. And then all of a sudden they start to like each other. Something changes. And there is something there. All right, pitch time. We've got three direct-to-video sequels. We've got Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas. We have Beauty and the Beast, Belle's Magical World, and Belle's Tales of Friendship. There was a TV series for a while called Sing Me a Story with Belle. The Broadway musical ran from 1994 to 2007, and I think it's the 10th longest-running musical ever in history. 2017 saw a live-action film of Beauty and the Beast, and December of 2022, which is this year, we're supposed to get a live-action TV animation special, Beauty and the Beast, a 30th anniversary celebration. So what in the world do we do with this material, Larry? I have always had an answer to this. My pitch, this is the oldest pitch I've ever had. I've had it since this movie came out in 1991, what I wanted to say. Okay, bring it. All right. Gaston falls from the tower, but you'll notice he's actually falling towards water. And this is an after the credit scene for Beauty and the Beast. Gaston is in the water. He pulls himself out. LeFou comes running. And Gaston's like, how could this happen? You know, rejected again. And he's like, what, what, what? And, Gast- and LeFou is LeFou is like watching. And as Gaston is fuming, slowly his body begins to change and transform into a hideous beast. And LeFou also begins to change and transform, maybe into a clock, but maybe, maybe into something else, maybe into a boot, who knows, uh, a, to- a stool, who knows. And it is about Gaston is going to be given a chance to have the, the same opportunity that the prince had to change, to redeem. He gets an enchanted rose. If he can find true love and be loved in return, he will be uh, cured. I want this as a half hour cartoon TV series. I want it Gaston and LeFou traveling the world, sort of Don Quixote and Sancho Sancho Panza style, where where every week Gaston tries to break the curse, but screws it up royally because his ego gets in the way, because he's a narcissist, because everything that's wrong with him prevents him from becoming a hero. And maybe by the end of the series, we finally redeem him, but we take the long road to getting him there. That's that is my pitch. It's called The Misadventures of Gaston and LeFou. <laughs> I love it. Copyright 1991, except I don't own the copyright. (laughs) 
All right. So Lumiere, as a human, strikes out on his own, and he struggles. He barely ekes out a living as a maitre d' in a less than stellar French restaurant. And he becomes sort of desperate for money. So he goes to see his old friend Cogsworth, who's been teaching village children for the past several, several years. He decided to, you know, take a little bit of a career change. And he's also educating the children of Belle and the Prince, right? And Cogsworth sits Lumiere down and tells him it's high time he stops chasing women. And he starts thinking about who he is and what he wants out of life. And so Lumiere decides to start his own restaurant, right? Where he starts chasing a woman who is the enchantress, <laughs> who puts a spell on him to teach him a lesson. So he's back to being a candelabra until he can learn the real meaning of love and relationships. And of course, he goes back to his old friend Beast for help and support in trying to overcome the curse. Nice. So that's what that's what I've got. <laughs> we, we both went with someone else got cursed. I, I think that's, that's right. <laughs> that, then that must be the right idea. That must be the right idea for this. That's right. Well, what movie are we tackling next week, Larry? Next week, we are tackling our special Halloween episode. We're doing the Ooh. original Hocus Pocus. Not the sequel, but the original from, I believe, 1993. I think you're right. I'm excited to watch that and discuss it. Oh, it'll be a lot of fun. Hey, so if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? If you write us a review, we'd be so pleased. And you can also check out our What's Up on a Disney Facebook page. You can tweet us at Andy Redwin or at Larry Brenner 6 or drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon. <laughs>